Welcome to Soundbreaker. I'm your host, Bob Shammy, and we are about to break the silence. Join me as we go behind the scenes and meet some of the most influential names in the music industry. Get ready for remarkable success stories that break the norms and defy the odds. From dreams to success, from challenges to victory, an exclusive backstage pass into the lives of music trailblazers as they create their own path to success. This is Soundbreaker. Welcome to Soundbreaker. On today's episode, we're talking to Mark Berry, who is a groundbreaker in the music industry. Thanks for joining us, Mark. For our listeners who might not be familiar with you, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do? Great. Great to meet you, Bob. Great to be here. Um, yeah, so Likewise. my I've been doing this 50 plus years uh, in the business since 1972. I left uh, I left New York City and went to uh, London, England, uh, just trying to escape the Vietnam War, which was a raging war when I was in high school. So, kind of, I went to the Institute of Audio Research in Lower Manhattan, down by Washington Square Park, uh, uh, three nights a week during my junior and senior year. Got my little certificate day after I graduated from high school. Bang! I was on an airplane to uh, to London, England, where I pounded on doors for a couple of weeks. I wrote down all the favorites. Wait studios. a second! You just backed up and went to the UK without. I mean, who paid for the ticket? Your parents helped you out, or how, how did the whole thing work out? I, and and I was working at the time. I was working at a supermarket in New York, uh, so uh, I saved my money and and I I, I paid for my. Uh, the Institute of Audio Research in Manhattan. I paid for that course, uh, the courses as well. And um, and then wrote down all the favorite studios from my favorite artists, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, Elton John, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy, you know, all the great rock bands of the uh, 80s, all recorded in London, England. And I just uh, wrote down all the studios. And as soon as I landed, the next day I was out pounding the pavement. And, uh, wow. Luckiest kid in the world. I uh, went into Air Studios, uh, wanted to see the studio manager. She wasn't there at the time. They said, come back the next day. So I came back the next day, went into the main lobby. No one was there this time in the front lobby. So <laughs> I'm walking down the main hallway of Air Studios, and this English engineer comes out, assistant engineer comes out named Nigel, Nigel Walker. And uh, he goes, can I help you? Help you? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm looking there for Joyce Moore, the studio manager. And oh, Joyce isn't here right now. And he goes, hey, well, you, you American? Is that accent? I go, yeah, I'm from <laughs> City, blah, blah, blah. I go, oh, New York City. Oh, my God, come on in. So here I am. I get invited into this session with uh, Alan Clark, who was the former, uh, he was the lead singer for the Hollies. And uh, wow. long, long, cool woman in a black dress. And, you know, all these great records from the 70s. And, um, and I'm sitting there hanging out with uh, Dee Murray, the bass player from Elton John, uh, Brinsley Schwartz on drums, and and Alan Clark, lead singer. And I just kind of uh, uh, made myself at home. And when I went downstairs for a cup of coffee, I just said, hey, anyone need coffee? You know, hey, I'm going downstairs. I smoked at the time when I was a teenager. Hey, anyone need a pack of smokes? You know, I'm going downstairs. Yeah, we got smokes. You know? And that's, uh, you know, and then I came back. Uh, they said, uh, I said, can I come back the next day? And they said, yeah, you can come back. Yeah, come on, hang out, you know. Mm -hmm. So 
So Joyce Moore finally came to me and said, you know, hey, you know, everyone really likes you. Do you want, do you want a job as an assistant? And I was like, are you kidding me? You know? <laughs> so, uh, so I took a job uh, and they hired me as an assistant engineer. And um, uh, the studio was owned by Sir George Martin, who produced all the Beatle records. And then I, uh, I, I was assisting Sir George and Jeff Emmerich, the, the famous Beatles engineer, um, on sessions. Uh, the first session that I assisted on was yeah. uh, Live and Let Die with uh, Sir Paul McCartney uh, and Winks. So I did that. And, you know, I was just a, just a tea boy getting coffee, you know. You were getting, one lucky kid from New York, I have to say that. Very lucky. Very, <laughs> I was in the right spot at the right time. And, you know, like I said, I was just a tea boy. I was just hanging out. But, you know, I'm hanging out with Jeff Emmerich. I'm hanging out with Sir Paul. I'm hanging out with George Martin. You know, and I'm going, holy crap. This is like, you know, I stepped in it, you know. Are they paying you? Did you like give you a salary or something, or you know, no, like in, a monthly? Beginning, uh, in the beginning, no. Uh, uh, I was just kind of like hanging out. Then they gave me like a, a small stipend, and you know, I had I rented a one room, one room, you know, from a, an old lady uh, uh, in Russell Square, uh, not uh -huh. not a, from from Air Studios, and uh, and it was uh, you know, I was hey every day I was hanging out with like the next you know the next big superstar. So they used to put me with um, a lot of the American clients that came through the studio. So they put me with this girl, uh, a lady named Carly Simon. And we recorded a record um, uh, called You're So Vain. And that mm -hmm. was the first recording that I got my name on as an engineer, um, working with Carly Simon and, and Richard Perry and, you know, Mick Jagger sings background vocals on You're So Vain um, and, uh, you know, just hanging out with the cream of the crop. The, Unbelievable. The best of the best. I couldn't ask wow. for, you know, wow. uh, a higher. You know. I mean, um, obviously, you know, you dived into the, my, you I just answered my second question, which is what got you started in the music business. Well, just a question. Was it something you always wanted to be in the music business? Something you had yeah. inside when you were a kid, like a passion? Because you said yeah. you went, you, you got a certificate, you went to school, you, went, yeah. you got a job in the supermarket to pay for all of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, it started out, you know, my dad, uh, my dad loved music. So, you know, and back, back in the early uh, mid 60s, when stereo just first came in, I would say, yeah. my dad, hey, dad, how come, the, how come the vocals are on the left speaker and the drums are on the right speaker? And my dad was going, I don't know. Go find out. <laughs> My dad was a scientist. He didn't know. So, uh, uh, so that's what I did. I just you know, very fascinating studying it, and then I found out about the Institute of Audio Research, which sadly is no longer around. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, I had some great teachers: Irv Deal, uh, you know, uh, uh, John uh, Vorm, uh, uh, who wrote the the book. You know, yeah. uh, Vorm, uh, who wrote the the Recording Engineer's Handbook. Who I actually later. In my career, when I came back from England, uh -huh. I worked at Vanguard Studios, and he was the chief engineer at Vanguard Studios. So I kind of like came back to this guy who, like, you know, you know, trained trained me on how to on how we also we did our workshops at Vanguard because uh, uh -huh. the studio institute didn't have a studio at that time. You know, got it. Um, you worked with some of the names that were legendary name, which you just mentioned a little while ago, like David Bowie, Duran Duran, and Carly Simon. You just talked about. Uh, can you share uh, a memorable moment that influenced you uh, or influenced your path in the music production and engineering? Well, certainly, uh, 
you know, just going to school initially to find out what, what this whole engineering thing, sound thing was all about. Yeah. And, you know, like you're hanging out with Sir George, you know, and, yeah. and, and you know, Sir George says, hey, uh, Mark, could you go move that, that mic stand over the orchestra for living that die? Can you move that like three feet to the left, you know? And I'm going like, what's he hearing that, that <laughs> makes him want to move that mic three feet? So, so I got outside and, you know, it was a 63 piece orchestra for living that die. So, you know, I move, I move it over and come inside and yeah, it sounds different. So I'm saying, God, what did he hear that I didn't hear? You know, like, but yeah. I hear it. I came back in. I heard, I heard. Better uh, quality. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I heard it. So yes. I kept uh, uh, pursuing it at air studios. It was the cream of the crop for engineers. Uh, John Punter, Bill Price, who did all the Sex Pistol records. Uh, John Middleton, who I worked with on the ELO, Electric Light Orchestra uh, uh, recordings. Um, so it, it was the best of the best in terms of the engineers uh, that were working at Air Studios. Wow, amazing. This is really amazing. Um, <clears throat> your, extensive, uh, your extensive production and engineering and remixing you know, earned you 36 gold and platinum records uh, mm -hmm. among the projects that you, you know, part of, uh, part of it. Is there one that really kind of stand out the most or can have a special place? Uh, and if you can share it with us. Well, when I came back from uh, England, I, I worked yeah. there for, uh, I, I was having immigration problems because I was just an assistant. I was a T-boy. Anyone, yeah. any British kid could have done that, right? Run, run for coffee and cigarettes and stuff like that. Yeah. So I had immigration problems. Uh, so I came back to New York and, uh, you know, I, w I walked the streets of New York for, for a while. And then I, um, I got a job at Vanguard Studios, yes. which was the turning yeah. point of my entire career, because we were right there at the, uh, uh, the breaking of the disco dance scene, uh, which was an enormous disco era yeah. in New York city. So, uh, so, you know, Maynard Solomon and Seymour Solomon, who owned Vanguard, Maynard ran the division and Seymour ran the classical division. Uh, they had their own studios on, on 23rd Street, 23rd uh, 7th Avenue, and the offices were at 71 West 23rd, which is on the corner of 6. So it was a block away uh, from the studio. And uh, they they would put me initially just, uh, you know, engineering recordings. And then I got kind of got into the disco dance scene. Mm -hmm. Um and it became uh, uh, what I what I was known for, and and mixing dance records uh, for the night for the clubs. You know that was when the, the twelve inch business, as you know, was like you know oh, enormous, yeah. enormous. Absolutely, you know, it was like found revenue. You take a song, you go into studio, you spend two grand, you remix it, and then you sell half a million twelve inches, and you know out of this yeah. two thousand dollar expense, you made a million dollars. You know, uh, so uh, that's really where I made my name and got involved in the dance. Uh, in the dance music scene. Uh, and then I started working, uh, you know, with a lot of the Vanguard artists. And then people were coming to Vanguard Studios because Mark Berry was there. And Mark Berry was the engineer there. And Mark Berry engineered and mixed, uh, you know, the Pusey album, you know, uh, 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 or, you know, other Vanguard uh, recordings, the Players Association, uh, whatever. And uh, so people were coming and say, oh, who makes this record? Oh, Mark Berry, he works at Vanguard. So, so I was bringing in clients into Vanguard, yeah. uh, and I, that's when I, you know, got introduced to Arthur Baker and John Roby. At, you made uh, a name for yourself over there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got my name on great. a lot of cool records that were, you know, yeah. very orient dance nightclub 
you know, I had the sound, and you know, and then and everybody and then it, wants oh, you to engineer these records now, all the you know, and right. all the big artists. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that's how. So I continued doing that. Vanguard loved it because basically it wasn't costing them anything to have me around because I was bringing in so much outside business that were paying the bills. They were paying my salary times ten. You know. Wow. At the, so uh, yeah, I was just kind of hanging out, having a ball, making records, having success. You know, at one point I had, you know, I, I wanted to produce records. You know, and uh, Maynard, Maynard would go, no, 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 don't, no, you're a good, good, good mixer. <laughs> I mean, you learned, obviously. You've been there enough that you learned everything. At one point, I, I, I highlighted the Billboard uh, Hot 100, and I had 10%, uh, sorry, the Billboard, uh, you know, I had 10% of the chart. Wow. Right? So I oh. slid it under Maynard's door, you know, and uh, here is, you know, I had, you know, uh, I had, you know, a lot of records with my name on them that were all over the charts in various uh, positions. So I said, man, come on, I'm not, come on, look, I'm doing this for other labels. I, I want to do this for you. So that's when I met, uh, uh, met Alicia and that was my first recording, you know, Maynard, you know, uh, said, okay, okay, okay. You know, stop bothering me. Basically, you know, here's $1,500. Go make the record. Right? Wow. Wow. And we did this record all night passion. And he was basically like, you know, and if you lose this money, it's coming out of your salary. You know, it's like, <laughs> It's amazing. Like fifteen hundred bucks. Unbelievable. So I did the uh, I, I, Alicia, and you know she had a phenomenal career at Vanguard. Great. Hit, hit after hit. Yes, yes, absolutely, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, you worked um, with artists, with various artists of different genres. Uh, I would say pop, rock, and jazz. How do you adapt your creative approach, you know, to fit each project? Um, well, I had a set sound. I had a set thing that I did. You know, yeah. and I. Uh, you know, uh, we had a little device called the AMS, which was, tr I, I could re-trigger snare sounds. I could re-trigger bass drum sounds. I could make noises, sound effects on this on this one unit. And uh, that was really the cornerstone to, you know, a Mark Berry record is that I used my own snare. I had my own foot, which I, you know, which I stole off someone else's record and then yes. did to it engineering wise. And then put it back onto this this new recording that somebody hired me to, to remix. So I was really putting my stamp on all these records, which had really hard, hard hitting direct rhythms. Yeah. You know, sound noises, sound effects. Like, you know, I was taking stuff off of other people's records, you know, that they, and I, and I manipulated and hide it so well that they didn't know it was a, it was a little piece of sample off of that recording. Wow. Know? And that's how I that's how I got away with that for for all these years. <laughs> well, don't say the name of the records. You don't want nobody like, coming after you now walking, for publishing. <laughs> I was like a walking lawsuit back then. I mean, you know? yeah, doing various uh, genres of music from classical to to blues to to you know uh, orchestral work with Sir Paul on Live and Let Die and uh, you know various other sessions uh, with Sir George as well. This is great. Uh, in addition to the impressive music career, Mark, that you established and you built throughout the years, uh, you ventured into film as well. Yes. And working with Grammy superstar Drake, can you tell us about this experience? Sure. So, uh, so we had a movie uh, uh, that we... Uh, uh, someone came to me with a film that was done by a schoolmate of Drake's at a private school here in Toronto. You know... Um, and they were, they remained friends while he was on Degrassi, the TV show, and stuff like that. And then he, uh, 
And then he left uh, uh, Degrassi and the mixtape that he was working on the streets exploded. Like it was one of the hottest mixtapes around from this Toronto kid named Drake. So, uh, so they, um, Drake came back to Toronto as a result of the mixtape and he did a show at the uh, uh, sound Academy here in Toronto. And, uh, I was approached to put the movie out. And, uh, so we picked up uh, the film and I was able to put a deal together with, um, with AMC theater chain, um, uh, through their specialty division called Spectacast and Spectacast, uh, at the time, uh, was doing like, you know, the opera on that Sunday to Thursday time period, no bums in the seats, no $8 Coca-Cola's being sold, you know, uh, $11 bags of popcorn being sold. So that time period is what they farm out to third party, uh, thing could be the opera, could be the wrestling, could be UFC. Uh, but you know, people come into the theater, they see the event, whatever. So we were able to put together, um, 1400 theaters, uh, worldwide. Um, and it was a worldwide release, worldwide release. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Over two nights. Um, and it was very successful for us and it kind of got us into the movie business. So, um, uh, and then we were able to, uh, through Paul Schindler, uh, our lawyer, my longtime lawyer and friend, uh, uh, we put together a deal with, uh, James Prince for the broadcast and DVD rights at the time, um, uh, for release, uh, internationally. So it, for us, it was a, it was a win-win situation. Um, and it was very successful for us. Um, and I said, hmm, I kind of like this movie uh, business. So we kind of continued venturing into it. And now we're, we're full scale into, uh, film, television. Um, uh, uh, we acquire content, uh, we executive produce content. We have the sacrifice game again with AMC shutter channel, uh, that's coming December 1st. Um, and a couple of other, uh, uh film projects uh, as well. We have Bloodline Killer. That's with Tyrese Gibson from Fast and the Furious and Academy Award winner Bruce yes. Dern uh, in the movie as well. So we were able to, you know, I work with a third party investor, you know, last guy in, first one out, partially funded films. You got a $3 million, you know, low end budget. You've raised two and a half million. You need a half a million. Great. I'm able to go to my guy on Wall Street and say, you know, are you in? He goes, okay. Is the movie up and running yet? Is it being shot? Do we have committed actors? There's criteria that we have to go through. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how, that's how we get these done. We're now involved with uh, acquisition of third party rights. So we have now the uh, Smoke and Joe Frazier story. Uh, which I heard we about that. Yes. Yeah, yes. That up, Toronto Film Amazing. Uh -huh. So with those uh, extended rights from the family uh, as well. So you so own we, the rights to make the movie yourself now? Got to own the rights, uh, lock, stock, and barrel. We've got family rights. You just rights. need to fund it. Great. They're putting funding together right now. Yeah. Uh, we have a script from Daniel David Stewart, who wrote uh, Officer and a Gentleman, The Last Sacrifice, The Blue Lagoon. Wow. You know, well, we've congrats. Got this is great. Definitely Emmy great news. Script. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Now we're looking to, we're trying to put together a, a director team. Uh, we're going after uh, actors and actresses now. Uh, Great. To start. I mean, yeah. obviously, you had an incredible career and journey so far in the music industry. Um, something I'm sure you experienced, we all did. Um, you know, the music industry known for its setbacks and challenges. And can you share if 
some of the difficult moment that faced your career and how did you overcome it? Well, you know, what kind of set me for a loop was the whole digital aspect of things as an engineer, because my background in engineering, I come from an analog world. So uh, yes. you know, I wanted a reel of tape on the tape machine and I wanted to hear the tape moving, you know, and also, you know, as an engineer, we use that tape as a third instrument. You know, you could manipulate the tape sonically. You could load it up at level. And when it played back, it came back louder because you saturated the tape with more sound. So there's things that you can do analog-wise, you can't do those digitally. So I never really followed that digital curve as an engineer. Uh, but I continued producing. And, you know, thankfully, my ears still work. And I can, you know, I can hear a hit record still. So, uh, but I never... Uh, uh, I never followed that that digital curve. And quite frankly, I wasn't interested, you know, because uh, you know, for me, it kind of uh, mu the music sonically kind of lost. They lost all the peaks, the valleys, the sonic things that you hear as an engineer of, of nearly fifty years. You you hear things, you go, yeah, that's the way it should sound. And you know, it's a recording that was done many years. Ago, you know. What I say, you kind of uh, learn to adapt to digital and all of that because as you yes. said you came from an analog world yes yeah. yes yes yeah. yes i had to adapt because i mean i mean no one's making tape anymore right there's no, no there's <laughs> a, two analog studios in the yes. world uh, uh, but yeah interesting very inspiring uh mark um, what's the common it's uh, misconception that people have about the music business or the music industry in general well, they they think that um, they think that big hits just going to drop out of the sky, uh, which in this day and age doesn't. You have to promote and market your recording, um, and and you know we have a label services division here. We're distributed through a division of Sony, and you know we we do Spotify playlisting, we do film, television, video game, we put all kinds of music into film and TV uh, globally, and then we have digital radio that we service, um, and these. These kids are making these recordings, but they're not allowing, you know, any additional funding to be spent on promotion or marketing. They say, oh, I spent all my money on the record. You know, I said, well, that really wasn't a wise move because you need to promote the record because it's such a noisy, noisy field globally. Right. I mean, I think I think 280,000 songs a day are up on Spotify alone, just one platform. So it's a very noisy, noisy field. You need to break through. Right. You need to create uh, value for your masters and copyrights across many different avenues of income generation. One being Spotify playlisting, the other being putting a song in a movie, a TV show. Hey, we put a song in a European car ad and, and it paid my client one hundred seventy five thousand euros for a European car ad on a 12 month term. Hey, if that director of that car ad wants that song bad enough and he thinks it fits perfectly with his visual right they'll pay you for it. as you know the, the the music business is based on collaboration and relationships any memorable collaboration that you would like to share with us a story that oh, yeah, someone yeah. kind of you work with and left an impact on you you know i left uh, uh you know david david bowie was uh you know had had great ears you know, and, you know, I remember meeting him in his manager's office in New York uh, uh, for the Never Let Me Down record. And, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, we're all sitting around, you know, I'm like, I'm like nervous. I'm hanging out with David Bowie, you know, and I'm like, you know, okay, you know, what are you looking to do, David? You know, what are you here for on this? You know, what, what do you, he goes, Mark, just, 
just do what you do. You're, you're here because I like what you do. Just do what you do. Like, and there were like no restrictions whatsoever on, on how the was going to sound. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Um, you know, technology obviously, uh, has a significant change uh, in the music landscape and affected a lot. And, you know, I look at it more in a positive way. Have you have advancement in technology or how should I say how advancement in technology, uh, helped you and influence your work in the music industry as a whole? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a faster pace. Now you can get things done at a much faster pace. Mm -hmm. so, um, it's, it's, um, yeah, just things move at a much more rapid pace than, uh, than, you know, uh, and, and, and I like that because, uh, you know, when you're dealing, when you were in the music business many years ago, you were just in the music business, right? But today yeah. it's, it's the entertainment field. It's the media field. So yes. you're, 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 you know, you have songs in your publishing catalog. You can put those songs in movies and TV shows that you're working on that you control. I mean, obviously, when we do these financing scenarios for the film projects that we're involved in, you yeah. know what? I want all the music to come from our publishing catalog, right? Because that means we're Correct. internally, right? We're paying ourselves internally, and we're exposing and exploiting masters and copyrights that normally wouldn't have, you know, a chance at radio. But some director may hear them and want to put it into a film or television Yes, uh, yeah, true, true. And technology does have a, a big influence on our business right now. I mean, oh, yes. as you said, you cannot just be in the music business. You're in the music business, and you have to be also in the tech business to, add, to help advance your business from Absolutely. deliveries and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you stay updated in the latest trends uh, in the business? So what, what keep you going? Like, what? Is it social media? Is it certain things you listen to that keep you updated in what's happening? And how do you continue to learn more? Yeah, about social what's media, going on? Definitely there. Uh, we definitely have our, our uh, uh, nose to the street in terms of yeah. what's going out there. Very important today. Um, and, uh, you know, we're always looking for new projects, whether they're uh, partially funded or whether they're just a script idea or you know, uh, a, a, a biopic idea. Um, you know, we just got, uh, we just got involved with a biopic on Lou Gossett Jr. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who, who coincidentally, you know, yeah. Daniel David Stewart wrote the Smoke and Joe Frazier movie and Daniel David Stewart uh, uh, wrote Officer and a Gentleman as well. So it's kind of, you know, full circle, you know, from many years ago. Uh, but yeah, you know, we're always keeping our nose to the street and finding out what's going on always picking up on uh, new film and TV projects because I really believe that that's where the entertainment sector's uh, uh, going, especially with the expansion of the streaming networks worldwide. It's uh, yes. very, very, very powerful. Um, I have started uh, this podcast because I stumbled uh, on some of the greatest uh, or great stories during my 25 years in the business, or 25 plus, I would say. I figured why not, uh, why not inspire others? Uh, like myself and you and, uh, and other people, great guests that I had and I'm going to have, um, and, you know, in the path of their unique career. Now, as as you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping in this business, you know, gatekeeping. And uh, how, you know, just to kind of help our listeners, how can they overcome uh, 
such situation when they come across it because there's a lot of that, you know. Any tips from you? Yeah, I think uh, here, here's a great tip. Own it and control it, right? From the own it and control it. Copyrights that go yes. into a movie, own and control the script of a movie to the production of the movie, to the music that goes into the movie, um, to the selection of the director, to the selection of the actors. Uh, you know, well, we're it, talking it, about the movie side of it, so... Uh, which is great advice on on the visual and the you know in the film side of it. But as far as the music, own it. You said and control absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it, you know any band artist. I mean anyone can record a record. It's not like you know back in the day. You know I would go into the record plant studios and it was you know four thousand dollars US a day for me to hang out in that studio for the day. I wanted to lock out that studio for twenty four hours. It was probably three and a half four thousand dollars US. Back in the early 80s. Yes. Funny. There's no excuse for a band or an artist where they can't go into someone's basement facility that's got the same gear as a five-star recording facility digitally, right? And, and own and control their own masters that they then can further exploit into a movie, a TV show, a video game, an advertisement, a movie trailer, right? This is... Yes. This you need to create value for your masters and copyrights. The business today operates on a four to one principle. Okay. If you yes. say, Mark, Mark, I want a million dollars. My masters are worth a million dollars. I say, Bob, no problem. I'll get you a million dollars. Not a problem. Please show me $4 million of receipts over the previous two years. And I can find someone that will gladly cut you a check for a million dollars. And because they know that the million dollars is safe yes. Yes. in a pipeline of four yes. million, all right? Yes, yes. It's just business has evolved uh, uh, financially as well, right? Uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, you know, I found a band here in, in Canada and, and I was able to, you know, through all the buzz and, and hoopla and everything, I got them a, a, a $1.5 million recording contract with EMI Music. It was, wow. the deal was so big, it was yeah. between EMI Canada, EMI LA. So I got them that. And then we went to EMI Music Publishing and we got them a $750,000 publishing advance. Wow. They had one record, Bob. So this is like in uh, 91, okay? Not one record had they sold yet to create that sort of value. If you want that type of a deal today, you better bring four times that amount to the table. And they'll gladly, Absolutely. Cut, gladly cut you a chance, right? Because they know that everything is safe in this pipeline of, of, of uh, exploitation, right? So... That's just how the business has changed and altered. I see uh, uh, going through the business. I mean, these are valuable insights, really are. And I'm sure our listener will find them very incredibly helpful and very helpful. Sure, you know. sure. Uh, before we wrap it up, uh, anything that you like to plug in? Any new projects? Something that you're working on, special that you want to plug in? Yeah, we got and, Smoking uh, uh, yeah. uh, which is the life rights of Smoking Joe, and uh, we're very excited about that. Um, and we're just in the middle of putting the, uh, the finance uh, together uh, uh, for that as well. And then we have the Lou Gossett Jr. Uh, documentary, um, which we're very, very excited about uh, uh, as well. So we've got some great stuff coming out on the visual side of things. And then on the audio side of things, we have a constant stream of clients uh, that come to us uh, uh, that are doing great. We've got Josh Turk, uh, Anthony Brown, Delon Ohm. These are all clients that come in. They've made their masters in a friend's basement. 
and uh, you know we're helping them get it up and running. All the artists I just mentioned to you, we have a million plus streams on Spotify for all these clients. So we go after Spotify. We're in we're in the insertion business of putting them into movies. We need to create value for these masters. Yeah. That's absolutely required if you want to see it expand even further. Creating value. That's what's about creating value of your masters. That's it. You know, you yeah. can't you know, you know Monty Littman, right? Yes. Yes. So Public records. Yeah. Quick I call it Monty Littman. Monty, I got a girl up here in Canada. Phenomenal. Sixteen years old, cute as a button, sounds like Mariah Carey. He goes, Mark, send me to that. No problem. They said, Okay, do you want an MP three? You want a wave? And he goes, No, 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 no. I I, I don't want to hear the music. Just send me the data. Yeah, he wants to see the data, yes. He just wants data he wants yeah. to know if that ball is at the 50 yard line for him to even come on board because yes. they don't have the money to take it to the 50 yard line anymore right? yes yes so they want the, they want the game already in motion they want that ball at the 50 yard line they pick it up and they take it down the field even further right? yes and yes. that's what monty Littman, okay uh -huh. Uh -huh. a legend well, of business. yes i mean the game changed absolutely you're right you're right 100 right um well, thank you for joining us today, Mark. And this concludes today's episode of Soundbreaker. And please make sure to follow us on social media and stay tuned for new episodes. See ya. Great. Take care, Bob. Thanks Bye -bye. again, Mark. Bye-bye. This podcast is presented by Music Dash, world's first AI-powered independent distribution CMS. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share the Soundbreaker podcast. And if you are joining us on YouTube, please like this video and subscribe to the channel. Until next time.